just had a crazy ass day. You're a busy man. I say it like I'm trying to exude some sort of self-importance. It's just busy. Start and stop there. You're not trying to make it seem like you're a very not important try- man. Yes, I'm not. But I feel like it, by virtue of me thinking that other people are thinking that it's important, that I myself think people think I'm an important person. You're, you're still falling into the trap. I'm falling into the trap. You're right. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. I went outside today. Oh, yeah. So your two-week or so quarantine ended. Yes. So my quarantine maybe, en- ended. Maybe you should explain to people how you ended up in, not how you ended up in quarantine, but like more <laughs> so your process, because it's not like you okay. were sick. Yeah, yeah. So I was in London, and then I decided to go back to Hong Kong because the situation in the UK with the pandemic was getting quite serious. My family was very concerned. So I booked a flight for the end of March, partially because I wanted to avoid crowds and also just wanted to give myself time to wrap things up in London. And then by the time I left, Hong Kong had instated a mandatory self-quarantine policy for any foreign travelers. So no matter where you were coming from, once you landed in Hong Kong, you had to go into 14 days of self-quarantine. And their recommendation is that you do it at home. And if you are really unable to do it at home in a safe way, then they will find accommodation for you. So my parents decided that we could manage it at home. I have my own room. I have a separate bathroom I can use. And my 14 days were up two days ago. And then weirdly, like yesterday, I... I felt really strange about going outside. Scared. I wouldn't say scared. Scared seems over the top, but I did feel hesitant. In what sense, though? I I didn't expect to feel that way. It just felt weird that now I could go outside. And I think it's just that idea of like in two weeks, which might sound long, might sound short. I don't know. It's like kind of this very middle amount of time. It was enough to like form a habit of being indoors. And it was strange to like put on street clothes and stuff outside and be among people who are just like walking around and stuff like that. So I did not expect that. Did you ever think that a lack of physical interaction, whether it's like things outside the confine of your room with other people, would have such a large sort of psychological effect on you? I mean, it's. I'm not saying like it's a game changer so much as that by virtue of you not going out into the real world, you've already had some sort of like psychological impact. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you asked me, you texted me the question, you know, how had my outlook changed? And I have a hard time answering that because I think the answer is yes, my outlook has changed in some way, but I don't feel able to like really explain what it is. And I think you have hit on one thing, which is that you just remove something that is familiar to you and you make this adjustment. I think I have like the mental discipline to make that adjustment and not feel too overwhelmed by making that adjustment. But at the same time, then like coming out of it, it was like, oh, now I have to readjust. Like now Mm -hmm. it's, you know how a lot of people are saying, oh, like, this is the new normal. And like, when do we get back to, back to normal? But it's almost like there's never a actual return to the state you were in. You only move forwards, right? So like coming out of this quarantine, I'm not returning to like pre-quarantine. I'm moving on to like post-quarantine Charisse. The biggest difference is that we've had our hand forced and we haven't had the option or the freedom to make this decision, right? And I think that's the biggest change or the biggest thing that I'm coming to terms with is that 
you're forced to adapt versus adapting at your own pace. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard. Obviously, it's really hard. But this is such a out of our control situation that you cannot align everything around you anymore. You just have to find a way to realign yourself. Yeah. All right. Enough banter. Should we get into it? Yeah, that was heavy banner, man. All right. My subject this week is, are artists the new interpreters of scientific innovation? So a little bit of background story. I was struggling to find something that wasn't overly focused on sort of the doom and gloom of the coronavirus. And during my searches, I just came across this piece, which actually came from, I think, something that was a little bit more doom and gloom. Because the the piece that I found this through was about how pandemics shape art of the era. And the reason why I didn't talk about that one was it just ended up being pretty complex, but also difficult to fully articulate because so much of it was dependent on the visual side of things. So this piece is from the New York Times' Style Magazine. It was written by Gisela Williams uh, in September 2017. So anything I mention from here on out will be considered sort of of the moment during the time of this piece. So things may have changed. And I try to do some research, make sure, making sure people's names associated with, I don't know, like whatever organization are still relevant. To be honest, two and a half years really should not feel like a long time. But really? because really? of how much oh, okay. the world has changed in the last like six months, I think we now feel like it's forever ago. Which is interesting. But in the context yeah. of your subject, I don't think it's that outdated. Yeah. I actually really like coming across old stories. It's a point in time and like almost it's almost like a, a fence post, right? It represents the ideas and thoughts of a particular era. And we can look back on it and see, oh, this is what they were thinking, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. And I used to actually dismiss older articles or whatnot. They're like, oh, it's not relevant. But now that I've been reading more sort of like older literature it's just fascinating to see how fast or how slow we move yeah i think just being always cognizant of the time in which something is written yeah there's no reason to stop reading old things you just have to be aware exactly. of the time of that context all right enough backstory so the overarching thesis around this piece is about the emergence of a different type of artist residency and one that marries art and science so this piece references a few past examples, including, and I quote, Barbara Stefini and her husband John Latham, the influential British conceptual artist who both started the Artist Placement Group, or APG, in London, and whose goal was to embed artists in industrial and government organizations to allow them to both learn about and to have a voice in the world of business and science. And to continue the quote, Latham himself spent time at the Scottish office in Edinburgh researching industrial waste heaps called bings that were created by distilling oil from shale, and the artist David Hall made 10 short films called TV Interruptions that were broadcast uncredited on Scottish television and are now regarded as landmarks of British video art. The project, which was named Organization and Imagination, or O plus I, in 1989, was considered groundbreaking and important enough that the Tate bought the APG archives in 2004. Just as a note, because we were talking so much about context, the APG was founded in 1965, which is a long time ago compared to 2017. Yeah. So other examples that they reference in the piece include uh, the Center for Advanced Visual Studies at MIT, founded in 1967. That was founded by Georgi Kepis. You're on your uh, own. That was, I have no idea that how was to founded by, that name. That was founded by Georgi Kepis. Cherise taught me that if I don't know how to pronounce something, just be confident about it. I'm try my best there. <laughs> I apologize, but what else can we do? Otherwise, you would just yeah. hear us like lots of question marks. And another example is EAT. <laughs> just funny. It's like EAT, obviously, um, which is Experiments in Art and Technology, founded by artist Robert Rauschenberg during around the same time, which is the mid 60s. Yeah, These types of residencies actually became less popular as artists migrated to more sort of luxurious summer camp varieties. But as of 2017, obviously referencing the date of publication of this piece, there seems to be a resurgence of interest that exists to observe, learn, and work within mainstream government agencies and institutions 
among entrepreneurs and scientists, as well as among the artists themselves. In this innovation-hungry age of TED Talks in Silicon Valley, every company seems to be launching an experimental lab that is meant to foster innovation through the cross-fertilization of ideas in a variety of disciplines, including the creative arts. I was going to ask you at this point, the piece doesn't really go into why the types of residencies changed. So would you feel comfortable speculating as to why you think the nature of residencies went from being kind of embedded in the world to being exclusive, kind of cloistered, and now swinging back to like being part of the world again? don't really know because I think I need more historical context. Like it's probably worth exploring and examining where the state of affairs were in sort of the mid 60s versus where they are now. And the one thing that I have noticed in general is this anti-science sentiment, which I think is the reason why science became less cool, Mm -hmm. right? You kind of feel it right now. There's an element of anti-science and that in itself means that it's no longer interesting or cool and like people are looking for other things that provides either comfort or some sort of purpose yeah uh, like a summer retreat so this is actually a big reason it piggybacks off of your question or you know whatever that idea you you posed but the thing that i find most interesting is actually the relationship between science and creativity and i actually put down some loose notes on a piece i wanted to potentially explore because i think that they on paper seem like they're competing ideas right one is purely objective and one is subjective but then it's also interesting because i think at this point in time and you know for better or worse this does sort of tip into a sort of post-virus world it's like hey you know what we've seen factions drawn up and sort of this anti-science movement is actually becoming more and more powerful yeah and what role can art play in maybe pulling that back and making science more interesting or more understood. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because you and I, we talk about how there's so much potential when people cross industries, right? Like, it seems quite obvious to us that when you bring two people together who have totally different backgrounds and get them talking to each other, then something new is going to come up from that conversation. But I think the really tricky part, which you've mentioned, is like perceptions around different subjects. So the barrier to overcome is like just getting people in the science group and people in the arts group to come together in the same place with like mutual respect for each other and what you're doing. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually like a big part of the challenge is like getting people to be open-minded to just having that conversation. It's funny because like there's so much evidence that that conversation yields results of some type. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And some of the more recent artists who have jumped onto this wave include Thomas Struth, Via Selmans, might have pronounced that wrong, Tom Sachs, and Olafur Eliasson. I actually know how to pronounce that one. It's Eliasson. Thank you. Uh, I'm familiar with the artist, but not how to pronounce his name. And then there's also like a very distinct example uh, involving photographer and architect Hiroshi Sugimoto, who mm-hmm. has explored the relationship between image and evolving technology, including his Lightning Fields series, which uses a 400,000 volt Van der Graaff generator, which applies an electrical charge directly onto film. And then just kind of like continuing on with the piece, it starts to get into maybe the philosophy behind why this works or why it's interesting. And they have a quote from Gerfried Stalker, who's the artistic director at Ars Electronica, a think tank that is essentially mm-hmm. a festival that celebrates art and science mm-hmm. based in Linz, Austria. And he says that now more than ever, artists are kind of like these cultural missionaries. And it's occurring in a time of intensive transformation driven by new technology and humanistic voices that address the ethical and moral questions created by this transformation. So in theory, like, so I guess that actually really resonates because I think we've seen a lot of outcomes surface due to technology, right? A lot of new things have been explored. A lot of new ground has been broken. I mean, social media is obviously the one that that occupies a lot of our attention and time and it has had such a big impact on our lives. What is it that you like strongly agree with? Well, I think it's just 
I, I just think that right now it so technology itself is science sure right but i don't think that we necessarily look at technology and science as two in the same i think we look at the sort of like output of technology and i think what artists are capable of doing are coming in and helping people unpack the technology that mm-hmm. engulfs our lives and make and help make sense of and it. And then also I think right? I think it's not even that there's kind of the after the fact, like translating the existing technology and considering, you know, how does technology fit in society, but also the bit where artists can be, address it when it's being cre- created, when technology is being made. But that's also a stage in which artists mm-hmm. and creative people should be coming in. Though I guess that's not exactly in that quotation. But I also stopped you because you were about to say, like, secondly, something, yeah. something. They also speak with Mike Stubbs, the director of FACT, the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology based in Liverpool, England. And he says that science is too important to leave to the scientists. Science has kind of become a new church, but it's clear now that technology has not been applied to everyone in society to their benefit. We need voices from the arts and sociocultural disciplines to provoke important debates, which I think in some ways is exactly what we're doing right now. We're not really from the realm of science, but I think we recognize and respect the the role that science plays in culture and society. Mm. And mm-hmm. the one, like I was in, on a previous call before this with Faith, was also within the making community and i made the point that the one thing that's interesting in this point in time i think the the point was in in reference to how she feels no one can really argue or get into sort of debate these days it's very sort of like everyone's trying to protect their point of view like they're not really open to seeding any ground right and yeah what you i want to be right yeah and what i said was interesting about science is that it always positions itself in a way where there might be something better or more truthful that comes along. And when that happens, I can let go of what I previously believed and embody the new and sort of better stance. It does sort of embrace that. Like the next thing is always the most definitive and up-to-date. Yeah. And I think that to his point, it's science feels like it's, I think from a mindset even though it's rooted in objectivity, it actually has a lot of carryover into just all facets of life in terms of like methodology and philosophy, right? Yeah. I mean, and also I think I'm not as, I, I think science is great. I don't like doubt science, but also the way science is communicated is still subjective to some degree. Like their scientists still are putting forth a stance and an argument mm-hmm. and it's, not necessarily always true that the numbers can only support like the argument that they are putting forth yeah but my question i was going to ask you is why do you think you know from this quote voices from the arts and sociocultural disciplines are the appropriate type of people to start debates like why are why are they any better suited than someone else the reason why they're so well suited to this is because they know how to communicate and message Mm. right they know how to speak to a demographic or an audience so that doesn't mean they speak to every single person out there but you and i speak to an audience my mom might speak to an audience or whatever like i think everyone has sort of their their demographic i think once you understand that what so-called creatives do well is that they are able to take an idea and i think package it in a way that is understood through the various mediums they might work within Mm -hmm. so like if you're a painter okay this is how you this is how you explain that but if you're like a singer a chef etc that actually kind of also makes me think about how science often positions itself as universal in that it applies to all humans the same way because we're all human beings on earth so if it's relevant to like the way the earth works then it's relevant to everyone but in reality in practice like you're saying among different audiences and subcultures and groups it becomes a different thing like it it, even if some kind of scientific law is universal the way that it becomes important or affects a group is different the law can be the same it's kind of like this whole 
pandemic, right? It's the great equalizer in the sense that we all are subjected to it and doesn't care what nationality you are. I think I'm I'm saying it's not, I mean, okay, it is an equalizer in the sense that like the science of the virus is the same for all humans, okay? Like no human, no like subculture, like just because you are, I don't know, just because you listen to rock music doesn't mean it. the virus affects you differently than if you listen to classical music. Yeah. Okay. But however, I know that was kind of like a goofy example, but the virus is affecting different racial groups differently because of all of the cultural yeah. context. And I think that's what I'm getting at. Like the virus itself is the same globally, but we've seen so clearly like the way different countries and people react is so dependent on their the, the culture and the socioeconomic everything that's been established. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. I think it's like, it's kind of like your mileage might vary kind of thing. You really like that quote right now. Oh, have I said that a yes. lot? Yes. Okay, I'll stop. At least you stop saying at the end of the day. I'm so predictable. Yeah. So kind of winding down the piece, uh, Artist Thomas Struth says, My feelings is that somehow, since the 1980s, politics are always running behind the development of technology, and it's very hard to create a legal framework to control what's happening. Maybe artists are looked to because of their freedom and critical analysis, and because in general, they are not corrupted. Someone brings up a self-driving car, and within no time, someone yells, Hurrah, the self-driving car. It's like, who needs it? What about more public transportation? I guess I guess what the piece tries to sort of encapsulate is that the role of artists aren't just to visualize that invisible layer of data, but rather help close that art and science gap to make things more approachable, easier to understand, so that everyone can sort of derive value from it. Yeah. And the last part of the piece, they have Jorge Menez Rubio, who spent time with the European Space Agency advanced concepts team in Amsterdam to build what they call a moon temple. So originally the idea was actually a little bit discomforting because it was deemed to be too religious or too new age. So despite a bit of the pushback, uh, the artists spent several months learning about the moon and they ended up designing something that could be 3D printed from moon dust. Maybe you can clarify, like fact check me on that. Yeah. So is that accurate? That is accurate. So as a team, they were kind of developing a concept. This hasn't actually been executed as like a physical structure. So one of the last statements of the piece says, the best part of the project might have been both his and his new collaborators understanding that science, contrary to popular belief, is not immune to the thrill of romance, the pull of magical thinking. There was a lot of friction about building a temple, Rubio recalled, but then someone said, actually, I like this idea. What if we just build this temple and leave? Maybe we decide not to stay and we just create a beautiful space to celebrate the Earth's relationship with the moon. Yeah. So I think that's the best sort of encapsulation of the role art and science can play together. So in many ways, science creates the framework and foundation that is infallible is a strong word, but basically it provides sort of a framework that is rooted in some sort of objectivity, right? And then it's for the artist to come in and help communicate the importance or impact of those discoveries or of, or of those concepts. Or the non-importance. Could be non Basically just to give Did it- you give an example of that? I don't have any concrete thing that comes to mind, but I'm just saying it doesn't, the artist doesn't have to elevate science necessarily. Like I think mm-hmm. it's, the artist or the creative person's role to look at the science and consider how is this relevant? Like you said, what is the impact? But it doesn't have to be positive, I guess is what I'm saying. Like it mm-hmm. could be a negative impact or it could be a, it could be something that's not like heartwarming. Do you know what I mean? Like I know that this piece yeah, ends yeah. about like romance and magical thinking, which I think is true that like an artist can create that kind of relationship to science that maybe we've lost but also it doesn't just have to like glorify scientific discovery in my opinion yeah yeah so is there a personal reason why you picked this piece uh, i mean i kind of touched upon it 
earlier, my interest in this is really about just kind of understand the push and pull between the two. And I think I'm just generally enamored with how anti-science popular culture has been. Mm-hmm. You know, it just feels like, and I, for me, like I, I've, when I was growing up, I was really into science, but not to the point where like it ended up being my my career trajectory, right? Obviously, seeing what I do now. But I find it really fascinating because once you understand the framework, because this is how I generally approach creative work, it's not about this blob, right? It actually works best when there's structure and then a sandbox for you to play in. And I think in this relationship, the sandbox is defined by science. And then within it, the creative can kind of create and, and develop and iterate on ideas within that space. So I think it's actually a very good example of how I personally view the creative process. Mm. Good answer. Thank you. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm on it today. I, I thought of an example. Sorry to go back. I thought of an example. Let's say scientific discovery discovered some type of drug that would allow you to work for 48 hours without sleeping. Okay. Like, on one hand, that's an amazing scientific discovery that, that, that is, like, chemically possible. But on the other hand, it has to be questioned, like, how could this be abused and what impact does it have? Does that make sense? So I'm not hating on science in the fact that, like, science is... Like, I completely agree that science is something that is, like, necessary to pursue, but I think the results in application are not always good, is what I wanted to say earlier. Yeah. yeah. And I felt like it came out wrong, like I was anti-scientific discovery. You're an anti-vaxxer and a flat earther, aren't really you? really scared there for a second. No, neither of those things, man. Neither of those things. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you were fascinated with science when you were younger and then, like, didn't pursue it. So how do you bring science back into your life, Eugene? I think that my central role as a communicator, I guess, like, I think that's what I find most interesting is that how can you take bits and pieces of of different walks of life to, I don't know, make your, make your life a little bit more clear, understand how things work and also where the opportunity lies i actually think you would i don't be, know i feel like i'm opportunistic i feel like i'm opportunistic i actually think but, that you would be the great type of person to be in a residency that was like in some kind of space station or biology center or whatever it is you know like those types of programs and then having you there and you like meet with different experts every day and then take photos and publish like condensed interviews or writing on the subjects like you'd be i i genuinely think that you'd be great for that i mean i've always wanted to do a make and retreat of sorts which is a little bit along these lines except the expertise is maybe not as concentrated so it's not like you're i'm going to a lab and i'm just working with scientists it might be like Oh, this person's a scientist. That person is a designer. That person is, I don't know, a chef or whatever. But I think the the general premise is around the same. Like maybe it's not as rooted in science, but I think how these residencies work, they're about intersecting an artist or creative with whether it's politics or science or whatever it may be, because there is the underlying belief that the more distanced people are, the more interesting the outcome. Mm. But I think there is something to be said. I'm not opposed to your idea of a making retreat like that, where people who are experts in very, very different fields come together. But I think there is something that is different about a artist, a creative person entering a space that's dedicated to something in depth and being like mm-hmm. embedded within that and finding a way to comprehend and digest and like publish information about that like i think Mm -hmm. that outcome is almost more compelling to me right now as i talk about it like Mm -hmm. getting the chance or not not just me and you but someone getting the chance to be like 
really properly exposed to like all of the inner workings of some kind of highly advanced or like really esoteric like scientific place and then all you do is like look at one type of caterpillar or something i don't know i just think that it's like i just i i I generally gravitate towards connecting and talking to people that have a very high point of view from something i know very little about or i'm fascinated about yeah so like it could be anyone and everyone right like it doesn't matter whether i've even come across your your industry or your job description or whatever it's more like how people are both passionate about that world and how they look at problem solving from that point of view like pushing you further on that like what would happen if you were making that connection over the course of two weeks for four hours a day as opposed Mm. to like having that type of conversation for an hour yeah i mean that deep that sort of deep relationship will always yield something more fascinating right i would hope so how would you recommend someone else out there who's really into science but their main line of work doesn't bring them into contact with it to try and bring some science back into their lives i don't know if that actually exists i think if you look a little bit deeper i think science actually touches upon anything and everything we do it's whether or not you're willing to look for those types of insights so actually had you i'm just going to kind of change your question a little bit more along the lines of if i'm trying to get more interested into science how do i do it Mm. and the thing that's worked for me is the things i'm interested in how can i find topics from the realm of science that speak to that so a great example would be this let's say you're into sneakers right obviously nike has kind of hit it out of the park with their zoom fly which basically has been this record-breaking marathon shoe, right? And then once you start looking into the science of how it happens, that just opens up everything. It's like, hey, how is a shoe constructed? How does the carbon fiber shank work, right? What are the limitations of the human body which prevent it or make it very difficult for it to break, you know, a two-hour marathon, right? How does the nutrition work? Like, I think it's more about finding that initial entry point and soon it's like, how do I put it? It's kind of like the land of Narnia with the, with the the wardrobe. Where like, you kind of step in, and then once you're past that one point, you're like, holy shit! There's like so many things around here that I find interesting, or that can sort of play off of that. It always has to start from a place of personal interest. Otherwise, you're never going to get into it. It's never going to be worth your time. You're not going to like go out of your way to look for it. So it's. It's really like a simple, I want, I want to say it's simple because I think it is. It's really as simple as that. That is a really good point to uh, segue. Music enter here. Okay, so my subject this week is how independent magazines are navigating the pandemic. I wasn't intentionally trying to pick a doom and gloom subject. There's a little bit of doom in this, but overall, I don't know, mixed bag. So what it is, this comes from a WWD article written by Tianwei Zhang. It talks about indie magazines in the UK in particular, kind of the premise, which I'm sure people are already aware of, is that shoots have been canceled, advertisers are canceling ads, production costs are surging, shipping is blocked, production places like factories are closed, teams are all scattered and working from home. So these are all these kind of like material challenges that face not just independent magazines, but lots of small businesses, right? And then some examples of how different independent magazines are navigating this Dazed is offering their April issue and the spring-summer issue of Another Man free to download. They also launched a digital campaign called Alone Together. And a lot of 
other magazines are doing similar things, such as this digital campaign. So another magazine launches Culture is Not Cancelled, Love Magazine calls theirs Love In, and they all have this kind of same general idea of like asking people to connect through creativity, share work that they're making, and then having these kind of like digital takeovers from notable names, like basically like online content provided by magazines. And I am slightly cynical about the way this is being mm -hmm. presented because what why is that i don't love that they're all having their own campaigns i understand obviously like they have their business to run and they need to produce some kind of content and this is a time where the pandemic is what everyone is thinking about so obviously they're going to run something like relevant to the pandemic but the position that they're taking about connecting through creativity and about having culture keep on going even though we're working from home and staying in place like that's universal like that's not owned by any magazine or any entity so i'm not saying that they're like being super competitive with each other because it doesn't seem like that but i guess it just feels a little bit proprietary to me what do you mean by proprietary like it seems kind of branded kind of like really trying to amplify their outlet mm. which obviously like in a capitalistic world that they have to do that yeah but at the same time i just wish that wasn't the case i th i think what you're trying to say is that like ultimately as much as they peddle themselves to be for the greater of the community it's actually still within a walled garden except that it's not actually because they're offering a lot of things for free what I'm trying to understand is like what. So okay, so there's this there's this quote there's this quote from Jefferson Hack, who's a CEO and co-founder of Days, and he says we will be supporting the creative industries by showcasing otherwise postponed or canceled projects, from fashion collections to exhibitions, films, and much more. Culture must be protected and projected in the bedrooms of every home to give hope and humanity in a time crisis. The importance of digital media in doing this cannot be underestimated, and. I wrote in my notes, I don't think that culture needs to be protected and projected by companies specifically because individuals are already doing that. But it's obviously nice that companies are stepping up to do it as well. How do you interpret this? How do you interpret the fact that there's like all these campaigns being run by magazines re related to like encouraging the ongoing cultural creativity i don't know i feel like for me personally it's there's i can understand the business side of it but th th this is sort of the business side like alex made this comment he's like man it's crazy how a lot of these businesses can't even really weather like a three-week storm well obviously there's more to it but like basically within three weeks they've decided oh shit like we we need to make a very swift decision right now um but I think beyond that, I think that right now there needs to be a little bit of an understanding of, you know, the reality of the situation and not just like throwing these campaigns in everyone's face because they just feel like a distraction. And I don't know if that's enough or not. Like you're kind of, I'm kind of trying to work my way through it because I can understand that while it's not for me, maybe it's for somebody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think but 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 what happens is that if everyone does the same thing then there's nothing for the people that are looking for something else. Mm -hmm. I I look at the whole situation and I'm thinking to myself if you're going to be really really honest to yourself this seems like the easy infallible approach where you can't really shit on someone for doing this. Oh yeah. But the contrarian take of like hey the reality of the situation is that shit's pretty fucked up. It's not as straightforward as we might say it is in a campaign you know yeah. like this is the reality and maybe maybe there has to be a sense of realism right but maybe realism has never been part of the whole fashion lexicon it's never been about what's real it's about like what i aspire to be what what things should be how should we feel it's about creating emotions that don't necessarily exist and pushing people towards those emotions yes actually you put it so well 
I think told you I'm on it today. You on are it. on it today. You are really on it today. I think that's what I'm responding to is like this like kind of forced sense of heartwarming togetherness that is being kind of fabricated. If you look at the whole situation, I think from a brand standpoint, the bigger you are as a brand, I think Dazed especially, like Jefferson Hack, I think is behind the scenes of Dazed, even though I think He's the founder. I'm like 95% Yeah, he's co-founder. So it's like, you kind of need to keep it in line with the brand. Like for us at Macon, like it's so driven by us as individuals and our commentary on society and culture that we can choose to be positive. We can choose to be negative. We can choose to be whatever we want to be. Yeah. But Dazed has never been of that sort of realist perspective, in my opinion. It's always been this sort of, I mean, just look at the way they, they, they do their art direction. It's it's all made up. And I'm not saying that in a in a pejorative way. It's just like this is what they've done. This is their bread and butter. So I think that the the real, real question is that I mean, this is not really about independent fashion magazines and fashion magazines and fashion magazines in general, but more so like independent magazines. And I think it's just a very difficult and challenging time. Yeah, I mean, right? like there's talked- another sub. There's another side to this subject that I haven't even gone into, which is like the very real budgetary and logistic challenges that they're facing. There are other examples, like a magazine curated by finished their latest issues in the midst of closures, but can't deliver it to retail because of shipping and of Socus being closed. Fucking Young is postponing release of the new issue as well. And so like other magazines are also having to make that decision of like, am I going to postpone? Am I going to cancel? Real hard F there. Well, how else do you pr- say, do you say <laughs> F King Young? No, but I'm just, man, Sharice changed. It's Anyways. not true. That's a magazine, by the way. I hold myself. Yes, sorry. Fucking Young is the name of a magazine. Do you say effing Young? That's very strange. Um, I would have probably prefaced it with, "Oh, there's this magazine called Fucking Young." This magazine that uh, comma yeah, effing Young. Anyways, anyway, yeah. Um, this has been an ongoing problem, right, for print magazines where their budgets are super tight. They're very dependent on big advertisers. Anything can tip the scales. It doesn't have to be a pandemic, mm-hmm. right? But this has obviously shown what happens. And so a lot yeah. of small titles are deciding in this situation to release issue content online for free and do live events on social platforms. More broadly and generally, my question is, what does it mean when an independent magazine doesn't have the independent allure of like that print product can you elaborate like how do you communicate that material online so i do have an example so there is this independent magazine called nxs and they recently released an issue called virtual vertigo and it's very interestingly shaped and sort of bound and it's atypical like as a product okay the central question of this issue was what happens to human interaction when it's all done through a screen and then it has to be a physical artifact because they've done things in it where like the text gets smaller on the page as you read it and different articles, the text and the images are interlinked and they pick up from each other in like a specific progression. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like independent magazines tend to do things physically that are less achievable in a digital format. Yeah. No matter what kind of interesting applications you might come up yeah. with, it's not the especially same now as like the types of things especially now given the yeah, fact that we're exactly. so driven by like cms's right all that stuff yeah great point yeah and they are and especially if you're independent as well their cms's are even more like standardized and less adaptable or like customizable and so that, that was where my question comes from is like how does it be an independent magazine when it loses a large chunk of their independent allure i mean obviously like they're still the words but it just becomes words that look like the same words on wwd you know Mm. and the only silver lining here well i shouldn't say only one of the silver linings here is that according to the article quite a few outlets have continued support of their audiences 
So even though they are facing budget challenges that will most likely cause a whole bunch of magazines to close, their readers are not abandoning them. It's just might not be enough to have like fans essentially yeah, at this point. I mean, we talked about this briefly on on the Making Discord. It's like just because readership is up doesn't mean that it's translated into more ad revenue, especially since brands themselves are facing this big uncertainty of when consumption will pick back up, right? So everyone's sort of like curtailing spending. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. Again, I feel like this is the third time I've said that, like something is nice, but it doesn't make a difference. Like it is, it is obviously really nice to have loyal readers who love what you do and who are like rooting for you, but it doesn't change the fact that like advertisers, brands, can't put as much money into ads as they used to it doesn't change the fact that like production costs are up because so fewer factories are open and like shipping costs are up and stockists are closed so they can't deliver products and like those things cost money that's all like doom and gloom nothing really to like discuss further but i think the interesting point i did make is like can an independent magazine be innovative on a shoestring budget in a virtual world like how do they translate their independent print product into something that feels similar i mean this this is how i look at it what's nice about digital is that there are 50 different channels you can explore right print is actually quite defined it's 2d printed matter right but as a digital brand you have curated playlists you have zoom meetup calls or whatever like whatever we whatever we do with open office you have podcasts you have video you have text animation all these other things that aren't necessarily cheap but they do allow you to create maybe Mm. an even more expansive brand than just being a singular print publication i think the difficulty is how do all of those channels tie back together and i think that's something we try to do as well right okay we've never had a print product but we still face like independent publisher you know difficulties it is challenging to think about okay we can do all of these things on different platforms and offer them but how does it come together as like a cohesive brand that people will understand and love creating like a cohesive brand is not that easy right so i would say that a print publications brand is maybe a little bit more straightforward Mm -hmm. there's less variables right but uh maybe a digital brand becomes even more difficult because as you mentioned you have to work within cms's you don't have the ability to customize so you have to find a way to make sure that your experience is consistent throughout. If I have to use Spotify for my playlists and Instagram for my social media and like WordPress or whatever, or Squarespace for my CMS and my publications and my publishing, is it going to be consistent throughout? And I think also a challenge that print producers will face is like when you think in print, it tends to be quite linear because you think about this like encapsulated experience when someone is interacting with your physical object, which I think is great. Like I love that experience. I I like books. I like magazines. But when you bring that online, it's so different because now you can't control the path in which someone is going to interact with what you're offering. And it can't be this like as neat of a package. Mm. I do have one example of like an independent magazine that I feel like mm. did something I really like. Are you familiar with Stack magazine? So Stack actually isn't a publisher themselves, but they select an independent magazine f- from around the world every month and then they send that to you. So they have a series that they launched called Magazines in a Time of Coronavirus. But what it is is it's not directly about the pandemic at all, they asked editors of different independent magazines to tell Stack about physical objects that bring them comfort. 
And I thought that was a really nice little series that's not overtly anything, but is responding to this current time and involving their community of independent magazines. And it just made sense to me. Like it just fit well with like what they already produce and mm-hmm. wasn't forced like we talked about and was genuinely like engaging separate from like being related to the pandemic that's all i had to say i th- if i if i was to kind of look and model out a few months maybe one or two years out into the future like a bunch of these indian publishers will probably close down yep and with it you lose a lot of interesting insights like you know just like unique points of view right mm-hmm. from maybe a, a physical publishing side but then again online publishing is pretty frictionless extremely cheap so it's not that you necessarily lose that opportunity to have a platform it's just whether or not you want to if you want to do it in a digital format Yeah, I mean, there is always the possibility as well that, you know, once a brand exists, you can keep it running in different ways. And then when you are in a position one year, two years, whenever from now to make a physical offering again, then you can do that. I hope that happens. Good place to cap things off. Yes, that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, actually, go ahead. Actually, the better bet would be if you supported us on Patreon. Yes. If you like this podcast, you can do us not just a favor. It's not even just Patreon, though. It's like everything we do. Yes. Not just this podcast. If you want to support me and Eugene and everything we do at Macon, you can go to patreon.com slash Macon and consider becoming a member at any of our three tiers. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can still email myself at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.